Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter, and I'm absolutely delighted to be welcoming our guests into our virtual pod studio today because they're talking about two subjects very dear to my heart, and I suspect the hearts of pod listeners, food and waste. More specifically, what food waste means, how we can reduce it, how we can change our whole attitude to production and ensure that we as a society redress and rebalance our approach to production, supply, demand and consumption. It's a great pleasure to be chatting today with three influential and leading activists and campaigners in food who not only talk the talk, but significantly and in their business and philanthropic lives very much walk the walk. Arthur Potts Dawson is a classically trained chef and an outstanding eco-restaurateur and is now a manifesto chef for the World Food Programme. Trained originally by the Rue brothers, he worked in the restaurant industry for 30 years and for the past 10 years he has been creating, opening and running sustainable food businesses, putting sustainability at the heart of everything he does. Constantly seeking to answer the question, how can the food industry change? and provide solutions to make the system better and generate further challenges for all of us. Arthur, welcome to Planet Pod and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the invitation. My second guest, Tristram Stewart, is an international award-winning author, speaker, campaigner and expert on the environment and social impacts of food. Following the critical success of his first book, The Bloodless Revolution, and his international prize-winning book, Waste, Uncovering the Global Food Scandal, he founded the environmental charity Feedback, which works internationally to improve the environmental impact of food. Feedback's campaigns and events, including Feeding the 5,000, where 5,000 meals made entirely from food that would have normally been wasted are given away for free, the Gleaning Network UK-EU and the Pig Idea, have been launched with partner organisations across the world, including UNEP, the EU and grassroots groups in dozens of countries. In 2016, he founded Toast Ale, which uses surplus slices of bread to make beer and has so far saved nearly two million slices of bread from ending up in the bin. Tristan, welcome to Planet Pod. Thank you and great privilege and honour to be alongside Will and Arthur. My third guest, Will Edge, is the founder and CEO of Green Sand Ridge Gin. And I have to declare an interest here as it's made just up the road from my home in Kent, and I can personally attest to its deliciousness. Will grew up in the Weald of Kent, and like so many of his classmates, started his working life in London and the city. However, home brews were his passion, featuring at his wedding, and fatherhood and a realisation that life behind a desk was not for him, triggered him to return to the Kent countryside and commit to a more sustainable lifestyle. The Green Sand Ridge Distillery was born in 2015, as it sought to answer the question, how do you take an energy intensive process such as distilling and not only reduce its environmental footprint, but have a positive contribution to make sustainability in your community? Not only did they use 100% renewable energy, they also work with local farmers to reduce food waste at the farm gate by fermenting and distilling quality produce that supermarkets won't take. There's also a pig link between Tristan and Will, but we'll come to that later. Will, thanks so much for joining us. Lovely to be here. We've loads and loads to talk about, and you've got so many areas in common and so much expertise. We'll inevitably run out of time. But just to kick us off, I wonder if we could start with the waste issue that you're working so hard to counter. And perhaps 
Arthur, could I ask you to give us a global perspective? Because I know this is an issue that's very close to your heart. Yeah, sure. Um, I've been working with the United Nations World Food Programme as one of their advocacy chefs. Part of that role, I have been out to South Africa and Ethiopia to look at the school feeding programmes, the more localised systems that they have in, in the African countries where there isn't so much food waste based on the final plate, but the food waste tends to happen in the picking, the harvesting, the bagging, uh, the logistics and distribution of it because their systems are uh, you know, not, as, not as good as, let's say, Europe or America's. Um, and so waste food that I was seeing as part of my trip through the ocean was in, on the ground, uh, streaming out of bags, being poorly managed, um, no real um, uh, high-tech solutions or even simple solutions to um, both collecting and... and, uh, um, and so what I began to see was this kind of waste on a, on a massive scale. Nearly 40% of the food that they were producing was not getting to the plate. Um, and it seemed to be the sort of flip side of, you know, what we were throwing away in the West was, I don't know, 40% or 60% of the food that we produce doesn't, you know, get eaten. Um, and it was amazing to see the two sides of food, which was one wasted in the logistics and distribution and one wasted on the plate and in, in, the, in the supermarkets. I mean, and in the fields, because I know that, that, that Tristan's cleaning program is, is, is the same kind of issue in, in the UK and, and in the West. And so that was one of the biggest issues around waste that I really uh, um, saw and began to understand. And then also understanding that the, the system of waste went on to the point where the byproduct of food, the husks, the plants, the stems, the leaves, were not then being turned back into the ground and being given a chance to, com to compost, um, to decompose naturally and then add to soil health. And so, because what was being taken was it was growing and it was either being eaten mismanaged or then burnt in the houses of the people who needed to have warmth and, and, and cooking and fuel. And so the soils degradation really began to happen. And over the past 30 years in Ethiopia especially, they've not been caring for their soils. So all of these waste processes going on and on and on and on. And it just, you know, there's no health left in the soil in these countries. And these countries are vast. And so that's one part of my role. The other part is the, the narrative that in these times, these coronavirus, COVID-19 times, so much of the food that's being grown to get to the frontline famine areas, if we're talking about um, Syria, we're talking about South Sudan, Sudan, and um, even parts of Ethiopia, because of the breakdown in logistics of the food system, because people aren't being able to get the food to the front line, Food is being wasted, food is being stored and not transported. And there's going to be an, and this is coming from the mouth of the executive director of the World Food Programme, David Beasley, who says there's going to be a famine of biblical proportions because of the food not being able to move. So a lot of it's being wasted in the field, it's being wasted in the warehouses, although some of it is dried, it's just not going to get to where it needs to go to. So from a, from a global perspective, food and the importance of it, how it moves and how it's how it's wasted, how it's stored, and then how it gets to people who really need it. Um, There's something I've been working on for the past three years, and, and you know, it's it's humbling to watch what's going on in the world. And, um, from a global perspective, food, food waste, logistics and distribution of it are just upside down, inside out. I don't really know how we're going to feed the 300 million people over the next six months who are going to be in famine situations. 
and the food is there, but we can't get it to them. It's crazy. That's really interesting because so often it's the those famines are caused by crop failure, aren't they? And the fact that the food just hasn't hasn't managed to be grown in the first place. But what you're saying is it's there. We just it's a distribution. It's a logistics issue almost. Well, it's kind of a people issue, um, which does lead to logistics and distribution. And the people who've been held back to get to the farms to pick it, held back to, to, to help with distribution, um, because it, you know, the, the coronavirus isn't just impacted on the UK and the US. It is a global pandemic, and it is restricting people's movement and the capacity to farm. Um, and so, so much of the products are being left behind in the field. And that, for me, is one of the biggest criminal wastes. And I know that Tristan has focused on that desperately over the past 10 years at least, is that food being left behind in fields, uh, unpicked and unused, is, is almost a crime, I suggest. Tristan, did you want to respond to that? Because, I mean, your whole focus has been about the history and the crime of, of food waste, hasn't it, in some way? Well, that's right. And I'll kind of move on from where Arthur has left off, because. Uh, alongside that accidental and tragic waste of food on farms and in the post-harvest stage in developing world countries, the areas of food waste that I've um, very much concentrated a lot of my energy on is the deliberate waste of food or the, the waste of food that could easily have been avoided. And we could start in, in Africa, actually. We could start in Kenya. Uh, a country I've visited several times to look at how farmers are being made to waste half of their crops, sometimes 100% of their crops, not because uh, <laughs> there's no one wanting to eat it or because there's anything wrong with the food. Uh, it's because um, of the ordering policies of the supermarkets in our country and other European countries. What I'm talking about is a combination of cosmetic standards laid down on fruits and vegetables, you know, all the green beans and sugar snap peas and other produce that we rely on Kenyans and uh, people in Latin America and all over the world to grow for us. Um, and then we say, well, you know, these don't meet our beauty contest uh, competition rules. Um, and there's no local market for these foods. Kenyans don't eat these vegetables. They call it Mzunga food, a white man's food, and, and, and they're not interested in eating it. So it literally goes to waste. It rots in fields at the very best. Uh, rejects sometimes get fed to cattle that can turn it into milk uh, for local consumption. But the waste of resources, the waste of land, and most criminally, the non-payment of farmers when this happens uh, results in essentially Africans working for free for white people. Uh, and we have seen that before. We knew what to call it uh, uh, then, and 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 I don't hesitate to call it slavery now. It's it's absolutely criminal. I've also frequently met farmers routinely met farmers who have had to uh, destroy entire crops not even because its cosmetic standards have have been uh, have been called out but just because the orders have been cancelled from the european supermarkets and they've invested their money um gone into debt farm workers don't get paid they can't feed the kids and that kind of injustice alongside food waste alongside world hunger alongside the environmental impact of food production is what has motivated me. And to kind of round off in a more positive light, I don't know anyone for whom that situation is okay. No one thinks that that kind of situation is a good way to run a food system. And by articulating, galvanizing and agitating with public pressure on our side all over the world, we have managed to change 
firstly, the policies of individual supermarkets, so that that kind of practice has been made much more rare and much more obsolete than it was when we started campaigning. We have passed laws, both in the UK, in Europe, and in the USA, to make it impossible for supermarkets to act in that irresponsible and unjust way that causes waste and economic loss. In the UK, the Groceries Code Adjudicator Act uh, and, and numerous other uh, laws, increasingly ambitious laws around the world seeking to trouble it, uh, to, to change it. And then perhaps most importantly, we've seen a gigantic culture shift and behavior change on the part of consumers or what I prefer to call citizens in, in Europe, in, in, in the UK and, and, and across the world. People are wasting less food than they were here in the UK. We waste a third less food in our homes than we did when records first started back in 2007, 2008. It's not enough, but that is a colossal shift when you look for other environmental measures with similar mass behavior change achievements. Very difficult to find them. And what I think this says is that we have a massive global crisis of hunger, of environmental devastation, and of food waste. And it is within our grasp to transform the food system. We are all co-creators in it. We all buy our food. We all can make choices around that. doesn't matter what our income uh, level is. We can all be part of a shift uh, to a more sustainable and fair food system. So um, I've seen colossal change. gives me hope. And it, it, it motivates me to, to say, yeah, we, we, we can do something about this. You're right. We can, we can all take action, but, but we still suffer appalling food poverty in the UK, don't we? Where very often access to, you know, proper nourishing, good quality food is just not available for those, those citizens in our community who are on low incomes, who are reliant on, on local supermarkets where we know the prices are driven up and the quality is possibly driven down. So, so while I 100% agree with you, you know, this is something that we all take responsibility for. There's still an enormous disparity, isn't there, between the food rich and the food poor in the UK today? Yes, and you could remove the word food from that phrase and yes. it would be equally true. Uh, one of the things that I always start with when talking about this subject is you have to start from the premise that um, solving the problem of food waste is not going to solve the problem of poverty. Neither is it going to by itself solve the systematic problem at the heart of the food system, which is the overproduction in some parts of the world and the environmental destruction that results from that. Once you've accepted the limitations of that work, you can nevertheless say that food waste is one of these nexus points where two things, measures that we can take on a practical level can help alleviate those problems. So food redistribution, Arthur kindly mentioned the Gleaning Network. This is a, a group of volunteers who, you know, uh, roused around the country. They, when a farmer has crops in their field that won't be harvested, they go and harvest it and then give it to charitable uh, food redistribution charities to get it to the most vulnerable. That, that can help. Right? And, and that's a good thing to do. It reduces food waste and increases food availability for the people who really need it, particularly of fresh fruits and vegetables. It is not going to solve the problem, but it points at the fundamental problem. And that is that we have a profit-driven food system that will essentially pillage the earth to maximize profit, poison the land with chemicals, uh, leave the people who really need it hungry. This is not a system that has been designed to look after human health, let alone planetary health. And that, that is why tackling food waste is, I think, such an urgent topic. It, it's, a, it's got 
individual things that we can do that have good pragmatic effects, but perhaps more importantly, the fact of food waste, the fact that we waste a third of the world's food is one of the strongest arguments against what I call the dominant paradigm of the food system. The dominant paradigm is the productionist paradigm, the idea that the solution to all of these problems is that we need double food production by 2050. This is the kind of propaganda that Cargill and Monsanto want us to believe because it gives them the green light to deforest the earth, douse the land with chemicals in the name of increasing food production globally. Those arguments are bogus. They are extremely dangerous. I think they're the biggest long-term threat to global food security. And the fact that we waste a third of the world's food, the fact that 2 billion people in the world eat more than is good for their health is a very clear way of saying we don't increasing, doubling the, the scale of this environmental disaster and public health disaster is not the way of building our way out of this crisis. We often talk on the pod about the importance of things like rewilding and, and one of our guests recently, Izzy Tree, who as you probably know run, runs NET, the amazing rewilding centre in, in Sussex, a state in Sussex, talks very movingly about both the life of the soil and the fact that we've probably only got 50 harvests left in the UK because our soil quality is so poor, but also about the fact that we, we produce enough food to feed the planet already. It's just because we're wasting so much. So I completely concur with that, that, that idea that actually we have enough. We don't need to double food production, but we do need to fundamentally change our relationship with food, don't we, Arthur? And a lot of the work that you do is about helping to re-educate people about understanding their own waste because it isn't just in the field that it's been wasted it's in the industry and in the kitchen both domestic and commercially that's that food is wasted isn't it uh, yeah i mean chefs traditionally were always kind of in a, in a, in replication of what they've been shown either by their school lecturers or by their chefs in their kitchens would you know dutifully go through the same type of process, you know, chopping off the top of an aubergine and the bottom of an aubergine, the top of a courgette, you know, the, the cauliflower leaves, celery bottoms, uh, carrot peel, carrot tops, uh, everything, you know, and it would all either be thrown away. I mean, this is classically 20 years ago when I was running some pretty big restaurants and we had almost 700 waste pickups a year. The black bin was this kind of black hole where everything went in, whether it was cigarette butts, coffee grinds, or, 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 or pig carpets, you know, or trimmings. It, it became, and that was when my eyes were really opened around the fact that not only is this doing huge damage to the environment, the environment where this was being thrown away, but also it, it was taking so much product away from chefs who had so blindly come become chefs and, and just copied what they'd been shown. So it was about unpicking the habits and very, very bad habits, professional habits of chefs all the way up to the top. I mean, I'm not going to name all the big names because we didn't talk through the course, but I mean, all of their kitchens are almost doing the same thing nowadays. And it's taking chefs, uh, let's say, for example, Tom Hunt or Justin Paul or, Just, or Chantal Nicholson or chefs now globally who will pickle the cauliflower leaves, who will take the top and tail of the aubergine and turn them into, you know, grilled melanzane or, or you know, ratatouille. Um, and they will take as much as they can from a product and turn it into money because ultimately that's where a professional chef needs to be creative. And that's what I've always said is that both the economy and the ecology of the kitchen go hand in hand. If you can be creative with celery, carrot, onion, garlic, mushroom trimmings, uh, and you happen to use fish in your, um, in your kitchen, use it 
all, every single last bit. And, you know, when I was working with the Rue Brothers, uh, Pierre Kaufman, Roly Lee, all of these top chefs, they would eke out the pennies from what was left behind from what they were making on their fancy plates. And it's the pennies that make the chefs either successful or non-successful. That's in my eye. A lazy chef generates waste. A creative, thought-provoking, and um, you know, future-thinking chef is pretty much what the future of cooking needs to be. And so through all of that, um, I've helped to create something called the Chef's Manifesto, which is a, an eight-point or an eight thematic areas which borrow from a lot of the Sustainable Development Goals that the UN created or 994 countries created uh, five years ago. We've got 10 years left with the SDGs. And it's the way that chefs need to both understand how to recreate the food systems in their kitchens, but also once they get it, spread that knowledge to others um, in universities and colleges um, across the US. I mean, this is global now. We've got Africa, China, India, Australasia, America, South America, everyone involved. And it's about generating a sense of um, camaraderie, that this is doable, that I'm sharing what I'm doing. I'm not holding back on the things I do inside my kitchen anymore. And so sustainability, ethics, holistic nature, composting, um, working more with seasonality and locality, but having a global narrative on all of it, um, is, is how we're going to stop food waste in kitchens happening. And what's great is that, you know, we've got over 800 senior chefs across the planet now in big, big hotels and restaurants and their own group, their own food groups talking about this because it's ignorance that tends to be the biggest issue here. Oh, I didn't know I could do that with celery or I didn't realize I could make a kombucha with the uh, rind of the watermelon. And, you know, just all these little bits and pieces, you know, you can eat out everything you can from everything that nature gives us and um, we'll be better for it. Yeah, and it's a read across, isn't there? Well, directly into into production as well, isn't there? I mean, I can see messages, you know, it's, it's a bit like listening to my mum talk, Arthur, in the nicest possible way, you know, a waste not want, not war, baby, don't yeah. waste anything, everything has a value, the only thing you waste on a pig is its squeak, you know, that kind of stuff. But you're absolutely right, it's there, but there's a direct read across into business, isn't there? And the work that you've been doing, Will, and the foundation of your business about taking those waste products and turning them into elixir, into gin for yeah, those of us who are parallels from, from what both Tristram and, and, and Arthur are talking about on a, on a global stage are, are exactly the same on a hyper-local stage where we work. You know, we, we, we're right at the front line, both in terms of the food waste at the farm gate and also food waste in the mechanization and industrialization of the food system. And, and you know, if, as Tristram was saying, it's the kind of farmer, it's the, um, the you know, the last resort, you know, any any decisions we're making in our food system here, they always fall to the farmer. It's exactly the same in, in this country. Um, you know, uh, just to give you an example, um, uh, the summer before last, um, one of the farmers we work with um, suddenly had 30 tons of plums left on the trees. Um, and and in, in talking to him about it, um, his perspective was that the supermarket that he supplies has has become more aware of the food waste problem and is wanting to tackle it, which is a positive thing. But in doing so, it's said to all, all of the store managers, you need to reduce food waste. And so they've all ordered less produce from the farmer. And the farmer is, again, the one who, who suffers uh, at the hands of, of the rest of the, food, the structural problems within the food system. And, and then... 
the you know the question of the, the kind of mechanization industrialization of the food system um and and trying to and and producing huge amounts of food waste to try and increase efficiency is a huge problem as well so um a nice a nice example we're working with a new business at the moment who make um the aromatic pancakes for your you know aromatic crispy duck that you buy those little round pancakes now they are not made round they're made in a huge flat sheet and baked in a continuous sheet and then cut out of the sheet so you end up with these um this pattern of of holes in this huge great wheat based pancake sheet and and we can take that um you know we're talking tons and tons a day they make 14 million pancakes a week and that's just a little local business. We can take that wheat and we can ferment it and we can produce a spirit from it. But you know that that the thinking is not there to 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 do that. Um, and I think about our food system as like a super tanker, and 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 the the people who are who who can change the direction of the super tanker, the the, the big players, supermarkets, those movements they always filter down to the grower and they the externalities are never built into the costs of the products that we we buy so there's a problem there in the supply chain as well as in the kind of production process isn't there and is it, but is there i mean ultimately there's a problem for us as consumers aren't there and and is it your sense all of you that 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 what we've just all experienced the the, the covid restrictions and the pandemic has made us more aware of food and food waste and do you think that our buying habits might change because our instant reaction was to overstock horrifically wasn't it and they said at one point i think there was something like 40 billion pounds worth of food stocked in people's cupboards do you think we are able to change as as consumers and if so what should we be doing tristan well the statistics based on all the surveys that are going on in the uk and in the us uh, would suggest that people are valuing food more they are wasting food less they're cooking from scratch more necessarily for many people because they're locked in at home and can't go to restaurants and the rest of it um, and i think this is also connected to the surge of appreciation in nature people are connected to nature more people are falling back in love with nature so to put my optimist's hat on and i do occasionally do that though my <laughs> default is pessimism um, I do see the great pause as an opportunity for resetting our relationship to food and thereby resetting our relationship with this wonderful planet we depend on. I think from this, we can emerge with a greater awareness that Homo sapiens is one species on, on one planet. And just like the virus takes no heed of national borders, nor do all the other environmental global crises that we have to face take any heed of national boundaries. We are planet Earth, an island in space, and we need to look after this beautiful little green and blue gem. And I think there is more possibility now than there has been in my life that our economy and our society and our culture and our values can align around that universally true fact um to take that optimist hat off momentarily <laughs> uh you know the, you the level <laughs> the level the level the level of the shift required really is it cannot be uh, under underestimated i believe it's possible for us to do it and there are enormous forces 
entrenched in the the old system of of exploitation of poisoning uh, land of maximizing profit at all costs to overthrow their dominance will require each and every one of us and our representative governments to stand in defense of uh, and the new vision for for how we can how we can run the world i think the kind of work that arthur is doing the kind of work that will is doing i mean will and i are like you know peas in the pod in this respect um you know distilling fruit that would otherwise be wasted toast ale is you know my company it brews bread that would otherwise be wasted and uh you know you you, you mentioned um in your introduction there was a, a piggy connection i mean will and i knew each other when we were when we were little kids, I don't know how much Will likes me telling that story, but I used to. Collect I've, been food eating, I've been eating Tristram's bacon for all my life. It's 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 built me. Will's Will's mother was my. I am not kidding you. My my best customer of all the eggs and pork that I um, produced with waste food from our school kitchens uh, when I was a teenager. I used to take all the school food waste back to back to my farm and and feed them to my pigs and chickens, and then sell the eggs and pork to the school. You wouldn't be allowed uh, to yeah, do that now, parents. Tristan. Um, I wouldn't be able to use food waste from a catering outlet. That is now um, illegal, unfortunately, wrongly. Wrong, uh, completely wrongly. Um, but uh, but I like that this connection. I mm. feel like we both absorbed something in this in the eggs that we were eating, and it's kind of germinated in us, um, and we've both become these brewer distiller uh, entrepreneurs of, of food that would otherwise be wasted. And I love that, and we've even done a collaboration. Toast Ale had some in its early days some beer that was perfectly good but not quite to our standard and, and will kindly distilled it into a moonshine uh it's beautiful um collaboration i hope you're doing more things like that um but but just to to kind of yeah i'll put my optimist hat back on and say look you know the thriving of of will's business of toast ale toast during the covid crisis has survived um largely because people saw in our company something that resonated with their values. We've been giving all our profits from online sales to um, a charity that I've been working with for, for more than 10 years, feeding 5,000 people every day uh, now with food that otherwise would have been wasted, hot, fresh meals uh, for people in lockdown who can't access a decent diet. Um, our volunteers, the few of them, who, the, our, our staff who, who were um, furloughed, unfortunately, they worked in the pub and restaurant part of the business, have been volunteering for that organization. Um, you know, just to, to make something good out of out of this this crisis, and I think people more and more will be looking for for companies that are going to be part of this this change, um, and we can do this kind of change without living a miserable life. Indeed, our motto at Toastale is that if you want to save the world, you've got to throw a better party than the people destroying it. And I think we can all take that to heart and say actually. The hedonistic approach to environmentalism, environmentalism, the idea, just like Arthur was saying, the squeezing of every last drop, every last grain, every last shred of every piece of animal and plant you can get your hands on. That's the kind of environmentalism I like. Let's enjoy each other and the bounty of the earth to its maximum potential um, and, and look after it. Arthur, we need systemic change in the system, though, don't we? And we need change at the top as well as as the sort of examples that Tristan's been giving and, and and us as individuals we need governments to step up here don't we and you mentioned the SDGs and they are a lever for change but so much more needs to be done if we're going to prevent the kind of famines that you were outlining when we first started talking 
Well, if I can say, I think we're dancing on a shaking bridge. The food industry is uh, completely in control of the, the systems that we face, particularly in the West. Um, they are the ones that dictate a lot of the policy. A lot of funding from these big companies goes into governments. Governments no longer have a responsibility of feeding the populations. It's now down to big uh, organisations. I've done talks with Monsanto, Bayer. Um, I've been out and worked with huge organisations from Kellogg's to IKEA. And these big, big companies who have a lot of responsibility around purchasing and managing how food is produced let alone moved to their big factories and turned into food that's then going to be turned into the things that are on the shelves in supermarkets. Um, you know, I think that we talk about government-led um, initiatives, but I'm going to sort of be rather um, controversial now. And I'm going to say that quite a lot of what's gone on over the past three months, I think, have helped governments to watch what the human condition does when food becomes more of a focus. They panic. They worry, they don't know where their food is coming from. They put all of the responsibility of food into the hands of the supermarkets. The government really don't have much capacity to influence what goes on inside big business because big business is running the food systems. Um, whether it's Unilever or Nestle, um, these big companies that do a hell of a lot of work out in Africa, um, saying they're doing good, but working for more profit. Um, and the UN and the World Food Programme, they're battling against why, you know, what companies, big, big companies are doing to be seen to be providing uh, milk formula, rice, beans, protein formulas for um, you know, countries around the world. We are seeing the food systems of our planet fall ever more into the hands of massive companies who no longer particularly care what the public say or do. I mean, when I was working with the big companies, they were a little worried because they said, we've got to wait for public uh, thought processes to change and then we'll change with the public and then we'll make more money out of the public want to be more sustainable and more ethical and more local but we know this is the case and i'm telling you i've been talking to the tops of each one of these companies and they know that it's the case but they won't move because they need to make sure their bottom line is growing they need to see double digit growth every year so capitalism is driving so much of what the future of food needs to look like and food is a commodity and it's controlled by big business so you're saying governments need to act. Well, you know, I think people need to act. I think people need to stand up and say, hang on a minute. I need a much more structured food system around me. I need my food system to be more localized. I need to have a much clearer agenda as to where my food comes from, what I feed my family and myself. I need food security. And I demand that of my politicians and I demand that of my government. I'm not demanding that of the supermarkets who are selling me sugary cereals and fizzy pop and crisps. So I think that the food system is a massive shake-up, and the only people actually who can change it are the people. Well, there's a whole localism agenda there too, isn't there? And it must be something that you see because your business is intrinsically linked to the local community, isn't it? And you're, it's not just you're taking the waste products, it's what you do with when if there are waste products from the, from, from the distilling process itself, isn't it? And sending those back into the community, you'll be at the, the boar farming community, but there is a localism connection agenda. Is, is that something that you see growing and, and getting momentum? I, I think so. I mean, I 100% I agree what, what Arthur was saying. I think that um, people are going to be the ones that force industry to change. You know, capitalist organisations do not change because, um, you know, it, for any other reason that, than 
consumers are deserting them. And, and I do think we have a response about us involved in the food waste and, and the food system have a responsibility to simplify the messaging, to let people know how they can change. You know, it is, it is complicated. Localism, I think, is one of the, the, the a, a brilliant things. But, um, you know, a, a, an example people often use is, is it better to buy a tomato that's grown under heat and light in the UK or one that's grown, you know, naturally? in a hot climate um and i don't know the answer to that but it can be complicated i think i always try and simplify the messaging down um i think that if you can encourage people to make purchasing decisions based on provenance and not price and if you can encourage people to only buy things where they know where they're from and th- both of those apply to industry as well and i think yeah i'll be i'll be giving the sustainability talk on on friday to the the to the UK group of distillers and I'll be trying to impress on them that you know if if you're buying cheap glass bottles from China and not locally made ones they're cheap because they're not pricing in you know the the cleaning up of all the damage they're doing often so yeah making 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 your, your purchasing decisions based on on, on sustainability and, and quality and and also also knowing knowing where everything is from that you consume, the, the the BLT that you buy in the in the petrol station, you know, if 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 people understood all of the damage that was done in the production of each of those, you know, parts of their sandwich, then they wouldn't buy it. So um, simplifying the messaging and and yeah, as exactly as Tristan was saying, building this groundswell of support and and encouraging people to be active in the choices they make and the companies they support and have a zero tolerance for bluster when it comes to marketing messages. There's a role here for the whole cooperative movement as well, isn't there? Both both in terms of production and perhaps us looking as, as communities for local food supporting and maybe growing our own or growing our own in, in, you know, in collaboration with, with others in our community and also cooperative sourcing and supply because again just worry that that those of us who can afford to make those decisions about where our food has come from in terms of you know whether it's sustainable or organic or local are not from that is not the decision that many people can afford to make for many people it's just buying the cheapest food they can get their hands on and inevitably they're at at the mercy of the supermarkets yeah the i think that in the farming community the cooperative farmer, farmers have had the most success in in holding their buyers to account um, and and have you know have 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 managed to ride out the, the most turbulent times in in our in our market I think it's extremely difficult in in terms of um, getting getting food waste to the people that need it um, I know Tristan does does work in that but um, um, yeah that is challenging. Yeah, and the rise of food banks during the pandemic has been pretty frightening to see, and also the dependence on free school meals and the provision of meals outside of the school environment for young people. There's some huge issues here about supply and demand and our relationship with food. Tristan, what would your call for action be? I mean, would your call be to the politicians who are debating the agriculture bill? Would it be to us as individuals? Or, I mean, who would you who would you want to call out on this in terms of what we need to do, what actions we need to take? Well, I think, um, as as Arthur was saying, we as individuals have enormous role to play, um, and 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 we should all be doing it. I, I think just to address your your um, your pricing issue, of course, organic fair trade these have price barriers. However, there are some things that everyone uh, can do. Indeed, consuming less 
uh, and wasting less is an environmental measure that actually saves you money and is, is most accessible for people who, um, who also will benefit most from saving, saving money. So there are, there are things that don't have that price, price point attached to it. Um, that said, I'm a firm believer that citizen action will only go so far. You need government representation. And for example, you know, one of the fundamental issues we have at the moment is this global increase in food production. It's being generated through one principal means, and that is deforesting the earth. We're chopping down the forest in South America, Central Africa, and Southeast Asia to grow more food. We can stop that, but only through international agreement, and that requires our governments, and that requires us to vote in governments that will represent the health of the planet and not just the health of the profit margins of the big companies that Arthur and Will uh, have been talking about. And, uh, and, I, and I firmly believe that uh, whilst it is absolutely the right thing to do as citizens to, to help cultivate the food system that we want to see, that alone is, 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 is insufficient. We need government action as well. Yeah, and we need, the, we need this to be part of this post-COVID recovery, don't we? So if we are genuinely to, to, to follow the Build Back Better hashtag and momentum and campaign, and we're generally hoping to get a green recovery after COVID rather than a, than a fossil-fueled one, that's got to be part of it, the, the, the food systems and our responsibility. And as Arthur said, the SDGs as well, crucial to that coming back and re-establishing a functioning economy, but also one that works for the benefit of people and planet, not just profit. I just quickly come in. I have to get off onto another call with the World Food Programme to talk about migration and people and food and migration and movements around the planet of food is, is vital and something that we need to be looked at for the future. But just um, there's been a battle that's so been, been sort of played out the past three months around this pandemic. We've been fighting a war against this pandemic, and and um, you know wars pretty much always disrupt food systems. And it's in that disruption that we might find that, you know, this sort of maelstrom of chaos, we might be able to rebuild some of the buildings that house our food systems and say, okay, well, well what were the issues that we found when Italy couldn't move its food, when Spain couldn't bring us our lettuces, when France couldn't deliver its artichokes? What were the systems that broke? And let's look at them. So out of what's going to be, oh, we failed, we worried, we, we, we panic bought, we bought loo roll and big baked beans. Just a ridiculous um, you know, system of, of fear-mongering inside what was in the UK. I'm just talking about UK specific now. But you know, we have to look to rebuild a more resilient food system and how our food systems work. And so in a way, this was an early test of a global pandemic that could happen again and again and again, with borders down, with people moving, with, with illnesses cropping up again and again, how do our food systems work? And how do we stop them from breaking? So this might just be a really good way of us saying, how do we rebuild this system? And how can people like Will and Tristan and like chefs around the world make a difference and have voices to say, we need to influence and innovate in this area now, because in four years' time, this happens again, and we looked at it and went, oh, this has happened again without moving on it, and that's just basically stupidity. Um, so I'm going to have to leave you there, if you don't mind. I've got to jump off onto migration and movement of people and food around the world, but um, is it okay if I jump out? Arthur, thank you so much for being with us, and we're really glad that you're there. Um, 
batting for us in those incredibly important conversations. And I can't think of anyone better to be to be there um, speaking on our behalf. So thank you for, for joining the pod. We really appreciate yes, your time. Well. Good to see you both. Take care. Good to see you. Well, we're we're running we're running short of time. So, do you have some some kind of clo- closing thoughts for us? Arthur made a, a really interesting point, and I think vulnerability um, and re- recognizing vulnerability is a can be a great um, pivot for change. And um, I sometimes think that that to, to go back to something that, that Tristram said, you know, where this little blue and green gem floating around in space. And sometimes that people, it's easy to forget that, you know, when we see NASA and Elon Musk burning resources, you know, on a vanity project going to Mars and things, you know, I think maybe people take from that that, well, if we mess this one up, we can go somewhere else. Well, that, you know, that ain't the case. Space is empty. You know, if you look at those huge, great, beautiful, um, you know, Hubble space images of the Orion clouds and stuff, and, you know, if you're in the middle of one of those Orion clouds, it's empty. That Orion cloud is a thousand times less dense than the best vacuum we can make in a, in a lab. So there's nothing out there. There's nowhere to go. Um, we can't afford to, to mess up this, this beautiful world that we have. And recognizing that we are vulnerable within it and our food system is, is vulnerable, I think is, is, is a strength. Um, and so I think coming out of this, um, building, building a better food system, educating people about how the food system works and the damage that we are doing by trying to make things cheaper and simpler and easier is, um, is a really great opportunity. Thank you. Fantastic note to close on. Thank you, Will, and thank you, Tristan, and, and, and for your calls to action. And I'm going to cling on to one or two of those optimistic comments, as well as the slightly more pessimistic ones we've shared. This is a huge agenda, and I knew we'd only scratch the surface. So, so if I may, I might ask you to come back and talk on this again. Um, but thank you for your time today, and thank you for being part of Planet Pod. It's been great to talk to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. And, um, you know, thank you in his absence to Arthur, who's gone on to do good things with the World Food Programme on our behalf. My thanks to my producer, Jim Hayward, who continues to keep the pod on the road, despite in huge challenges technically. Um, and a huge thank you to all our listeners. Um, keep in touch. You can tweet us at PlanetPod or visit the website, theplanetpod.com, where you can download previous episodes and subscribe to the pod. If you listen on our app, please take a moment to rate and review us because we really appreciate your thoughts and feedback. Thanks to all our listeners. Stay safe and stay well and stay gardening and making your, growing your own food. Goodbye. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Hayward, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners. Without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod, or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening. <laughs>